Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. This session on memoir features Heidi Julevitz, author of The Folded Clock, with Nina McLaughlin, author of Hammerhead, in conversation with Megan O'Grady, book critic at Vogue magazine. Hello. Good afternoon. Welcome to the seventh annual Boston Book Festival. We're thrilled to be here. My name is Sarah Parker. I'm the Director of Operations at the Boston Book Festival, and I would like to turn it over to our moderator, Megan O'Grady. Thank you. Um, hi. So first, um, I have some sad, uh, unfortunate news, which is that Vivian Gornick was not able to join us uh, today. She um, had a death in the family, so, um, but she's with us uh, in spirit. I am delighted to be here with uh, two women authors I've um, admired and whose work have started a lot of conversations this year, and it's uh, extra special to have them in conversation with each other. Um, so I'd like to welcome Heidi Julevitz and Nina McLaughlin. Um, Heidi is the author of four acclaimed novels, The Vanishers, The Uses of Enchantment, The Effect of Living Backwards, and The Mineral Palace. She also co-edited the anthology Women in Clothes. She's the founding editor of the literary journal The Believer, and she teaches fiction writing at Columbia University. Her new book, The Folded Clock, takes the form of a diary with entries on subjects like ambition, aging, E.B. White, friendship, the allure of yard sales, the difficulty of peeing into an air sickness bag on an airplane, <laughs> and what the reality show The Bachelorette tells us about the nature of desire. Um, Nina is a writer and a carpenter. She was an editor at the Boston Phoenix, and you can find her criticism in the Boston Globe, the LA Review of Books, and The Believer. Her first book, Hammerhead, recounts her experiences becoming a carpenter and the satisfaction and unexpected lyricism she found in this very hands-on craft. It's filled with meditations on things like the psychology of walls and the history of staircases, and it has references to Ovid and Didion. It's the kind of book that makes us see the things around us with fresh eyes. So welcome. Um, so just to begin, I'd like to say, talk just a bit about the memoir. That's sort of why we're here today. It has a long history, um, but it's really become popular in a very big way in the last three decades. It happens to be a form that women in particular have really dominated. Um, so memoir and personal narrative tends to take the shape of the person who is writing it. And for that reason, uh, it started to blur a bit with other forms, uh, such as criticism and even fiction. And that's something that we're going to talk about here today. Um, but what all these books have in common is that they're generally about how we become the people that we are. Uh, and the experiences and the reflection and often hard work involved in living life on our own terms. And I think in talking with these two authors here today, we'll start to get at why they're so irresistible to us. Um, so both Heidi and Nina are going to briefly read, um, and we'll discuss a little, and I'll be sure to leave time for your questions. And I know there are a lot of writers and students of writing here today, and so I really encourage all of you who are working on memoirs or autobiographical novels uh, to please join the conversation. Um, there will also be a book signing afterwards. Heidi, would you like? Sure. I keep flipping through this because um, it is a diary, so um, I could read from just about anything, and I always end up just like changing my mind at the last minute. But I think I'm going to stick with um, uh, island behavior. So I grew up in Portland, Maine, and um, and because I'm a professor, I don't have to live in or anywhere near Columbia University during the summer, and so we go up to Maine, which is um, where near, not even anywhere near where I grew up, actually. Um, so uh, this is August 18th. Today I rode back from an island. It's three pages, by the way. I don't know why it feels important to tell you exactly how long this is, <laughs> but that's exactly how long it is. Today I rode back from an island. We'd eaten dinner on this island, my friends and family and I. We'd collectively hauled a thousand pounds of food and gear to this island in order to survive three sunny hours on it. 
Ours was a motley August crowd, locals with roots that extended back many generations, locals who'd escaped from New York 20 years ago, an editor, an all-but-dissertation philosophy professor, a writer, an artist, two men who run silent meditation retreats in Mallorca and Nepal, three men named Ben, a lot of children. <laughs> the party extended horizontally along the beach. The mood was light but also inevitably charged. Islands make people competitive. Maybe because the subconscious fear of shipwreck and survival permeates even the most casual outing. Who will lead the masses when the weather turns and the food runs out? Who will be sacrificed to feed the starving useful people, the ones who can fish and make fires and sing morale-building sea shanties? I often contemplate my odds of surviving a shipwreck and how to improve them. When I was breastfeeding, I nurtured a lot of shipwreck fantasies. What if I were shipwrecked with my baby and 10 adults on an island with a large box of Clark bars? Wouldn't it be best if I ate the Clark bars and breastfed everyone on the island because my body would transform the worthless sugar into valuable fat and protein? Wouldn't that prove to be the wisest survival strategy? And wouldn't that guarantee I'd never be killed for food? I was no longer breastfeeding on this particular island trip. I had to prove my indispensability in other ways. So I swam and swam and swam. I could maybe drive, dive for lobsters. I could maybe go for help. That's what my eternal swimming said to the people sitting on the beach. I swam while others drank beer and slowly realized that they too would have to swim, swim or maybe be killed. My individual survival was clearly essential to the survival of the group. Was theirs? I don't think I've ever seen so many people swim on an island trip before. The water is probably 53 degrees out there. Then, near hypothermic, we ate the food we'd brought and not each other. We watched the sunset and quelled our panic that we'd have to spend the night because the boat wouldn't start or possibly it would sink. We loaded the scow with bags and people and transferred them to the lobster boat. I decided to row back to the mainland in a dinghy. I rowed with the artist and his squid-loving son. The son fished and caught a sandbar. The father bit the line loose with his teeth. As the moon rose and the sun definitively set and we were in darkness, I told them the true story of Boone Island. Boone Island is a long pile of rocks located six miles off the southern coast of Maine. In December 1710, a ship called the Nottingham Galley ran aground on this rock, which measured then and measures now 300 by 700 feet. The 14 survivors lasted 24 days during the winter. They did eat one another in order to pull off this astonishing feat. Boone Island, published in 1956, is a thinly fictionalized account of their endeavor written by Kenneth Roberts. Maine children are, or were in the 80s, assigned to read Boone Island for English class. Should our own personal hardships overwhelm us, well, we should be thankful our feet weren't, turn weren't turning to translucent sponges in our boots. I guess this was the lesson, or maybe this is too cliched an understanding of why we were assigned this book in English class, buck up, etc. This is so prevalent an attitude in Maine that we didn't need a formal education to learn it. The takeaway horror of Boone Island was far more existential. Yes, these men were freezing and eating one another, but the cruelest factor of their island internment was this. They could see smoke rising from the house chimneys ashore. As they suffered, they could watch the cheery proof of people warming themselves by fires and cooking food that wasn't, an hour ago, a friend. That struck me as far worse punishment than simply being shipwrecked on a rock. It seemed an appropriate metaphor for being marooned in Maine as a kid. There was another world out there. You could watch it nightly on TV, but how could you reach it? On a windless night without a current, the row from the island back to shore is an easy one. I was no longer proving my indispensability to the group. I simply wanted to take the slow way to shore under the half moon because summer is almost over and these are the quiet twilight moments that, if properly collected and preserved, help me survive the New York winter. I start amassing these moments during the final weeks of August. I must salt supplies for storage. They must last me until I can return to this place I angled for years to leave. I, um, just to give a little bit of context, um, worked as a journalist for a bunch of years and quit my job with no real plans besides getting away from a computer and um, got a job as a carpenter's assistant. Um, the audition day, the way the sort of the job interview worked was spending um, a day of work with this woman who ended up hiring me. Um, and we were tiling a floor in this beautiful house in Cambridge. Um, and I had, I had really, truly no experience going into it. 
And um, so we show up and we're sort of setting the saws up. Um, and she says, all right, you cut, I'll lay. Meaning I was going to be manning the tile saw. And I was just like, um, I don't know how to read a tape measure. You know, so it was just like total panic. Um, so this um, quick chunk that I'll read is from the sort of uh, tail end of that audition day. And it is, it's about two and a quarter pages. Yeah. This, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this uh, Mary, the woman um, who uh, became my boss, is out having a smoke at this time. Um, I looked at the section of floor we'd completed so far. Rain hit the window and pattered on the roof above. Footsteps on the stairs and an old man appeared. He looked a hundred years old with a long white beard and long white hair tied back in a ponytail that hung between his shoulder blades like the tail of something that belonged in snows. He wore light hammer-looped paint-splattered pants and a white t-shirt that hung from his shoulders like a sheet. He carried a paint can and a brush a dull canvas drop cloth under his arm. He set himself up on the opposite side of the room by one of the dormer windows. Good to see women on the job, he said. I didn't know what to say. It would be clumsy to explain that I wasn't really on the job, just trying out, had only been on the job for a couple hours, that I didn't know how to read a tape measure. It would be clumsy to say it was good to see a hundred-year-old wizard on the job, too. <laughs> Thanks, I said. It's good to be on the job. When Mary returned from her smoke, we kept working without much talk and finished laying the tile. They needed a night to set before they could be grouted, so we were done for the day. The combination of concentration, newness, of not knowing the rhythm of the day made the minutes swift. Three to four on a Tuesday afternoon at your desk, when all you're doing is murdering the minutes, it feels like torture because in the back of our brains, what we know is these hours are only ones. They are finite and will be finished. A girl I knew once went around to all the guests at a party and told them one by one, this is your real life, you know. This is your <laughs> real life. What a thing to be reminded of and how easy to forget. I liked how the tiles looked on that floor. We packed up the tools, reloaded the van, and I shivered a bit on the ride back. I wondered if I'd botched too many tiles, if my lugging had impressed, if Mary had noticed the time I'd gotten out of her light. You freezing, Mary asked, a little chilled. She blasted the heat and the windshield wipers swept across the glass. When we got back to her driveway, I thanked her and she laughed. Thank you, she said, and handed me 70 bucks in cash. That was 10 bucks an hour and it seemed like a lot of money for what I'd done. Go take a hot shower, get that tile dust out of your hair, she said. I rubbed my palm across my head, damp and gritty, crumbs of tile dust had adhered to my hair. I thanked her again. Take care, she said. These were final parting words, words you say to someone you know and don't, you don't know and won't see again. I headed home cold and low, a fatigue in my bones from standing all day and a recognition in those two words that she would hire someone else. Take care. I went to bed early and all the bad thoughts returned as the wind picked up and the rain lashed. Regret, work, money, health insurance, loneliness, missed trains and empty calendars. The next morning, gray but no rain, Mary called. She told me the job was mine. If I wanted it, I told her that I did. <laughs> so Heidi, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, to me, your fiction writing has always had this very personal sort of vein of um, kind of uh, private obsession. Mm -hmm. and then, but this is your first explicitly personal book. Yes. And I wonder, just can you tell us how you hit upon the form of the diary? And did it begin as an experiment? Yeah, it actually did begin as an experiment. Um, I had been writing novels for a while, I guess, at this point, And I, I had found myself getting really... Um, I always got myself, I feel like the minute I decided something was made up, suddenly this like crazy huge plot kicked into gear, which I loved. I love plot. Like I'm a total plot obsessive, I guess, in maybe kind of a junky way. Um, this book completely reveals all my junkiness in um, Clark bars and the bachelorette and whatever. <laughs> but um, but I, I really wanted to be able to figure out some way to move through like writer space in a different way, like not using a plot. Yeah. I just wanted to do it differently somehow. And I couldn't seem 
to do it while writing fiction, just fiction. I just had some kind of groove I was in that I couldn't get out of. So I was like, I'm just going to mix it all up. And I think too, I'd been hanging out with this friend of mine who was an artist. And I remember going to her studio and she's a visual artist. And I remember her going to her studio and she was like, so today I just thought I, or like five days ago, I'd like pushed some paint. I was painting and the paint mushed through the canvas and I was like whoa it looks so much cooler on the backside so then I decided I was gonna do that a bunch and then the painting became on the back instead of the front and then I decided to make cat ceramic casts of this shape whatever you know it was this sort of it seemed like she always went to her studio every day with this sense of play and I thought I've never done that I go to my studio and be like today I'm gonna start my novel you know and that just seemed like this fixed form that was kind of messing with my ability to do anything new and so yeah so I just thought I'm just gonna go do something totally different and I thought I'm gonna take it all the way back to like when I first started to write what did I write well I wrote a diary and so that's, and I started it, every entry was today or today I. And those two words, it was just like, I, if I just put those two words on the page, I could go anywhere. Like it was both limiting and totally like infinite at the same time. Um, and then I remember you mentioned to me actually in, in the room about this problem of whether to call it fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. There have been uh, a number of books uh, recently. I'm thinking of like Sheila Hetty's book, How Should a Person Be? Or even Knausgaard's My Struggle. Yes. Really sort of walk the slime. Ben Lerner's between. books. There were a lot of books. Yeah. So I think because I was coming from a novelist background and I turned this thing in, certain people were like, well, you should just call this a novel. Right. Um, and I, and I thought in a, and I felt that this was maybe a tiny bit, um, as I said, like a, like a conservative response or something, or, um, uh, that I just thought I didn't write it as a novel. Like I just didn't, I felt this kind of, um, I think the word I used and I always use it is fealty. I felt this kind of gratitude toward the form that the form had allowed me to discover some different way to get from a beginning to an end and to deny that somehow felt, I mean, I bet you in 10 years, I'll, I'll I will feel like who cares, mm. you know, but I think it, it, I just felt this real, I wanted to honor the form because the form really helped me out. Yeah. Um, so Nina, you know, there's a certain kind of memoir I think we're all familiar with, um, in which the author kind of embarks on this like quirky adventure. Um, and you get the feeling that they're doing it just so that they can go back and write a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> and just to be clear, like this is, that's not the book that you wrote. Um, you actually are a working carpenter now, as well as a, an author and a working writer and critic. Um, and so going back to that time when you, uh, you know, dared to quit your job at the Phoenix, I think the tipping point was what you had to compile a list of like the hundred most unsexy men yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> so bad. Um, so going back to that time, you answered this, um, this one ad, uh, for a carpenter's assistant. And I remember it said something about like must lug crap and you were mm -hmm. like, I can lug crap. But in fact, in fact, you, uh, wound up doing all these other wonderful things. So can you just tell us a little bit about um, that time and, and um, sort of at what point did you realize that you had a real story here? Sure. I, um, uh, I was so wary when the sort of book project came about, so wary of sort of falling into this sort of gimmicky exactly as you say, sort of like, oh, the year I spent without shoes or whatever. It yeah. seemed like there were a lot of books like um, into that. And when I first got the carpentry job, um, you know, people were, I mean, people were supportive and sort of like, oh, that's really cool. And a lot of the reactions were kind of these like, these raised eyebrows and like, oh, what a lark, you know, like that's so cute. And, um, and like, at, you know, it, it took me a while because it was so new to sort of think like, all right, yeah, this, like, this is my real life now, you know? Um, and and sort of, you know, six years later, like, um, feeling like, all right, it's, it's actually not a lark. Um, but it was sort of, um, I mean, the Boston Phoenix, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that paper, seeing some nodding heads. It was a great, really amazing place to work, um, filled with sort of like bright, weird, curious, funny weirdos. And so it was like a great place to spend my 20s, but it was sort of, um, as my job evolved, it was a matter of just sitting, I was the managing editor of the website and it was just scrolling and clicking. And as Megan mentioned, it was like, you know, compiling like the, ten, the you know, 100 unsexiest men. And I was just like, well, this is like, this is killing my soul, you know? Um, 
And so did decide to quit with nothing lined up. And when I saw this posting, it was just like, oh, this is like, this is exactly what I've been waiting for without knowing at all what that this is, had been what I was waiting for. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about writing it at all, uh, writing about it at all. Um, and in fact, like, you know, sitting down to write it, like all I've done in my life is read books, you know, and I just sort of figured, like I've absorbed how to do this, you know, like I'll know how to like tell a story. Um, and I, I didn't at all. It took like draft after draft after draft of sort of, um, the actual getting from one place to another was much, much harder um, than I thought it would be. Um, and then you discovered the space break. Yeah, right. like, exactly. Space break. <laughs> Ten years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the thing for me. Like, I loved all this sort of like musing and meditative and like kind of, you know, whatever. And, you know, my editor kept saying like story, 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 you know, um, but like the like sort of, you know, like the folded clock sort of that's what really appeals to me sort of memoirs and fragments a little bit, because I sort of feel like that's what sort of, I don't know, closer to how it feels to live a little bit. You know, you sort of go along living, 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 and then you have these kind of flashing moments that, that stand out. Um, I mean, so do yeah. you also feel, though, I mean, this was something I ended up thinking about a lot, and I'm sure, well, maybe now that you're free of your computer, lucky you, um, your computer job, do you think if it had been the hundred sexy enough men that they would have stayed <laughs> yeah. in that job? I don't know. I'm just like, where's your tipping? Where, yeah, right. where were you just like, no, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, but I think one of the things that is so appealing, uh, I mean, one of the reasons we love to read memoirs and your books uh, are two perfect examples of this is you, you can kind of feel when the author is surprising uh, his, herself and, uh, um, you know, there are a couple moments in your book, Nina, like, uh, when you make, um, you know, the, when you make a table out of mm. the pine board mm. that you found in your, uh, grandmother's mm -hmm. attic, for example, there's so much poetry in the book. Uh, but you also quote, um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, he says something about, you'll have to tell me exactly what the quote is, but, uh, something about how, uh, writing literature is just like carpentry. And you say something <laughs> like, well, Marquez obviously never worked with wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, this is, it's a famous Paris review interview. And he says, um, yeah, literature, um, is, is sort of more or less the same as carpentry. Both um, are, are, you know, it's just, yeah, exactly. Just like working with, with wood. And he admits a few sentences later that I've never done any carpentry. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think, what was appealing, so appealing to me about the carpentry work was how, how far away it is from words and sort of mm. not having to think all the time, like, oh, is this the best word? Is this, like, you know, sort of getting bogged down in sentences all the time. Um, and in some ways, it's sort of, in freeing up that language center, I feel like kind of going back to it, it, it sort of helps when I am actually writing, if that yeah. makes sense. Um, I mean, not to defend that Marquez guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, I mean, I wonder how much, I mean, I, I, I don't work with my hands and it actually, when I can, when I find opportunities to, it's, it does hit a different like pleasure zone. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do feel like there's something about, um, and, and this is obviously different from actually building something and from working with a piece of wood, but I do feel like architecture frequently comes to play and form comes into play when you're trying to write something, mm -hmm. you know, like coming up with mm -hmm. the exact perfect, like, you know, um, my, my analogy, which again, maybe puts me in the Marquez camp of like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about <laughs> is, um, but I think of like, Oh my God, if I had the option, um, if I had all the money in the world and I could build any house I wanted, I would be completely stymied. I wouldn't be able to mm -hmm. do anything. But if you gave me like, here's this shack, mm -hmm. it already exists. And now you just have to work within this shack and make yourself a home. You know what I mean? And so I feel like form for a book or a story, like be it plot, be it however you decide, maybe it's just voice or the way you tell the story. Somehow there has to be some kind of shack that you're trying to fix up. Does that make any sense? That totally. So do you start with a shack? I, you're ready? I try to find a shack. Yeah. Uh -huh. I try to find a shack yeah. that's not too expensive. It's yeah. within my yeah. price range. <laughs> <laughs> But I do, I feel like my whole, and, and I mean, you, uh, 
um, Megan mentioned this book, Women in Clothes, and this woman actually, who was a co-editor with that, she also did my cover, her name's Leanne Shapton. Part of what I loved collaborating with her about is that she is a forms genius. Mm. She's just a genius about forms. She can just like take an idea and be like, here's the form, you know, like she wanted to ask women questions, um, specific questions about their jewelry. So she's like, okay, I'm going to go to a, to an office space. I'm going to Xerox their hands on the Xerox machine because they're at work. And then they're just going to tell me stories about their rings. Right. So it's like this way of just, you know, you can't just, you, you need to like shut it down in some ways so you can burst it open. Mm-hmm that's when I think you get to surprise yourself. You know what I mean? When you have limited means somehow in your shack. Well, I would happily move into either shack <laughs> um, built, but, um, but you know, it's a good time to maybe talk a little bit about craft, especially cause I know that, um, some of us are also writing, uh, writing, working on books, you know, there's kind of an illusion when you do this sort of personal writing well, that you really are as a reader, just reading the author's heart sort of unfiltered. And that's what is so kind of appealing. And, and these moments, uh, in the book where you get to something that's kind of, um, raw and honest and, and painful feeling, um, but, you know, it is an illusion because you're creating a self on the page. And so I'd love to have you guys talk a little bit about how you actually did that. And if there were moments where you had to sort of like draw a line and be like, okay, I can't really go there, you know, or um, how do you, how do you navigate the craft versus the sort of, I'm surprising myself with this honest, spontaneous revelation? Um, well, t- yeah, two, two quick things about that. I had a woman ask me the other day, um, you know, you, you wrote a memoir, um, how much harder was it to, to sort of bear your soul? Like, unlike poetry and fiction, like there's no, you know, like you're not, in those forms, you're not bearing your soul as much, which I thought was um, really wrong, wrong, felt really wrong that I think with poetry and fiction and any writing, I mean, you're, 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 you're bearing your soul. Um, uh, with memoir, obviously it's a little bit more and it's sort of the choice always where to shine the spotlight and um, I know for me in writing this book, like, um, you know, writing, it's a lot about sort of going into strangers' homes and working on their homes. And it was very easy to write about these people who we would interact with for, you know, two weeks or six weeks. And I found it much, 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 much harder to sort of write well about the people in my life closest to me. Um, and I think that's sort of, um, in some ways, a, a little bit of a failure in the book that it was really hard to make the people that I love the most um, th- three-dimensional. Um, and always sort of... Maybe they're not. Yeah, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. <laughs> yeah, yep, that's it. <laughs> You're like, I did my best with what I had to work yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, that would, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, what I always say, it's funny when I gave this book to my editor and then, you know, they, they give you like the copy they're going to put on the back. And one of the things he said was like shockingly confessional. And I was like, dude, I haven't said, I like, I mean, anything that's in here, I was like, whenever people think of it as being confessional, I'm just like, what this book should be signaling to everybody is that there is a shadow book Mm -hmm. that I didn't write. That is everything that I would never share with any of you, you know? Um, and, uh, and then the other thing, I guess, and this maybe comes to the craft question or like how to, and I know that I'm like obsessing about forms. That's just my obsession these days. But, um, but I, I do feel like if you can build into the execution, you've chosen a real challenge for yourself that then you almost have this fight that you have to engage in every day. So an example of this for me with this book was, I'm trying to write a diary. I'm trying to be really, really honest because otherwise why write a diary? Um, but then I don't ever want to hurt anybody's feelings. Mm-hmm. Like I so, 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 which is why I've never written nonfiction really up until now, because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. That is my own personal thing. I'm not saying nobody should hurt people's feelings. I, I don't believe this is like a, a, a rule of the genre that just happens to be my comfort zone. And I just thought if anybody read this and felt shitty, I have not done the job I set out for myself. And so then I had this kind of cool challenge, which was how do I write honestly and not hurt anybody's Mm -hmm. feelings? Mm -hmm. And so this was this kind of constant, um, yeah, tension that I had to kind of negotiate or play with every time I sat down Mm -hmm. to work. Um, you know, another issue in craft, I mean, you're, you are making, that's an interesting point, Nina, you're making characters of, you know, 
people you know and mm -hmm. love the most, and that's such a strange thing. Um, but you're also making a character of yourself in a way because you have to create a persona. Um, I know, um, you know, Vivian Gornick, for example, writes in The Situation in the Story, which is a book I recommend to anyone who is trying to write a memoir. Um, she writes about this challenge, and that was always the hardest thing for her to do. Um, she wrote two memoirs, Fierce Attachments, and one that came out this year, The Odd Woman in the City. Um, and the hardest thing for her was finding that voice, that persona, because it's, it's, you can't quite put all of yourself on the page. Um, so was that an issue, or did, was that something that came more naturally for the two of you? Go ahead. Well, I mean, okay, so <laughs> I... I, I You've probably run into this on nonfiction panels. So this is actually part of what's been so fun about publishing a nonfiction book is suddenly you're on a nonfiction panel and they ask you totally different questions. And so one of the questions that I got asked a lot was about the constructed eye, right? And I was just like, what's that? I don't know what that is. And, um, and, and, and I think I solved that problem without knowing I was solving it by just being like, I'm going back to this I that was this person who used to write diaries. Like for some reason that diary persona, because I'd worked on it for so, I hadn't worked on it. I just had worked in that persona for so long that it just yeah. came very naturally. I think if I write another nonfiction book, I will struggle with this construction maybe a bit more now that I know it exists as a problem. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Cause I, you know, I think it's, I guess I didn't think a ton about it. Like, it was just like, all right, this is in this topic that I'm writing about. Like, this is just the voice that's sort of coming out and yeah. feeling natural. Um, the thing that I'm working on now, which is, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an extended lyric essay about the month of November, um, which is awesome. Thanks. Great. That sounds Thanks. awesome. Thanks. Oh, I would um, read that in like a, right, I, right now I'll read that. Um, <laughs> but it's a totally, totally different feel and voice. Um, but both feel, you know, uh, I, I don't know, essentially part of myself, yeah. I guess. Um, but it wasn't, I guess it wasn't like, oh, how am I, how am I coming across? How am I sort of how my sort of uh, demonstrating my own self as a character. It was yeah. just more like, it sounds like they were totally intuitive in both of you. Yeah. But I think there is that question of, and I mean, this was weirdly something that was an issue for me as a fiction writer, which I would take really personally, even though it was a character. I remember like with, a, with my first couple of novels I wrote, some people would say, um, this is uh, I really don't like your character. Your character is really unlikable. Mm -hmm. And I would take that personally, you know, I would just be like, uh, uh, you know, well, I think she's all right. Like I liked her <laughs> and I once got so mad. I didn't get mad, but someone said that to me and, uh, at one book I'd written, I, well, I just find this character really unlikable. And I said, well, you probably wouldn't like hanging out with me either. <laughs> <laughs> but then I felt it was this huge victory with my last novel when finally someone was like, I really like this character. And I mean, it, it's terrible to reduce it to a popularity contest or to feel like you want to be liked, but I don't know. I do feel like there's something that, that is, that is a complicated, yeah. um, desire that you have, especially if you're just being yourself. I mean, if you take it that personally with someone you made up, imagine how yeah. terrible it must be to hear that. Oh, I hated you. Yeah, like right. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, before we open it up, uh, to your questions, I just wanted to touch on a couple of themes that were, you know, you both wrote about in really interesting ways and, um, and that made me really kind of fall in love with both your books. Um, and one is, um, is gender, which is something that's so, so tough to write about. And it comes up in, you know, in both, both of your books. Um, I think, uh, well, let's begin with you, Nina, like what, maybe 2% of carpenters mm -hmm. are women. Um, and you have this wonderful line early in the book. It's something about, uh, you know, pulling up to a job and seeing this pickup truck dripping testosterone from the gas cap. <laughs> Um, but actually this work as a carpenter sort of ironically made you sort of really appreciate your femininity. Mm -hmm. And that's so interesting. Um, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, um, it was funny sort of, I was finding sort of going to work, uh, you know, it's work clothes, paint all over my pants and like my hair is tied back. And like, I, you know, it's like, I, I sort of, you know, wasn't feeling particularly feminine in the clothes and was, um, I don't know, it was really uh, amazing to me at first sort of feeling the impact of the sort of tools I was working with and the clothes I was wearing, how that kind of 
um, impacted the way I sort of felt about myself as a, as a woman, you know, that like, oh, the clothes I'm wearing makes me, I mean, I feel like a boy, like I don't feel like my like, you know, like <laughs> womanly self. Um, that over time um, faded, you know, I mean, it's sort of now I can kind of hold both together, which feels good. Um, and it's, you know, it's, a lot of people have asked recently after the book, like, oh, what's it like working as a woman? Like, what, are, what is it like sort of being around all these, like, these men? And it, I think the assumption is that um, these guys in these trades are all these kind of, like, gruff, burping, crude guys. And it's actually, I mean, it's really been a, a really sort of generous, relaxed, um, respectful atmosphere. And in fact, like, I'm coming to realize that working in a newspaper, I dealt more with, like, sort of sexist jerks than, than the guys that we work with, the plumbers and electricians and stuff. Um, but it was, I mean, it was a really, it was sort of a big surprise how much the work sort of impacted my own sense of my womanness. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, yeah. Heidi, for you, I mean, there's, a, you probably know where I'm going. That's this, story. But, but it's yeah. such an amazing part in your, in your book when you, uh, you overhear. So Heidi overhears two uh, male uh, authors talking about a third male author and whether or not he's a threat and, and coming to the realization that they yeah. probably don't see her or in fact, any woman writer as a threat. Yeah. Yeah, I basically was just, I overheard these two guys talking and they were just, you know, in that kind of like, you know, we we're too old to play, um, you know, pick up football games anymore. So we're just going to like, <laughs> we're going to put all this competitiveness into the, into the sports field of literary short story writing, you know, and, um, and, <laughs> and they, uh, and they were just like, yeah, that guy, he's not a threat. He's not a threat. And I just looked at them and I just said, well, one, one was on the phone with somebody else. And I just said, am I a threat? And he's like, what are you talking about? I love you. You're amazing. And I was like, am I a threat? And he just couldn't even answer the question. He just kept saying, you know how much I respect you. You know how much I love your work. I think you're a genius. I think you're, and I just kept saying, am I a threat? And he couldn't answer it. And we just kind of left it. So anyways, but yeah, I did, I did feel like, um, and, and I, I then had a very upsetting, very upsetting. Can I say his name? I'm just going to say his name. Um, his name's Gordon Lish. He's a very famous editor in New York. I had never had anything to do with him. I went to go see him speak and I know he's at the end of his life and I know he probably had like more game at a certain point earlier, but all I could see was no game and just <laughs> such insane sexism that I, I literally, I left and I just went to my students and I was just like, I am writing to be a threat. And so should all of you. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, please, uh, you know, any questions at this point that anyone would like to please come up? Yes. Uh, thank you so much. This is so interesting. Um, I wondered if you could just, uh, you touched on it and talked a little bit more. Um, I sort of started out at writing very, you, you mentioned the word sort of meditatively, just sort of not knowing where it was going and, and more touching on more deeply personal things. And then I started realizing I really needed to be able to structure things. And I started taking classes, so a more structured essay. And I realized I sort of have this dichotomy in me about, and I realized it's my filter, but I'm just trying to break through it. This one kind of writing where I just sort of start, I don't know where I'm going, and I often end up in very interesting places, you know. And then this other thing of where I'm just, you know, sort of, wanting a beginning and an ending, you know, some classes I've taken that was sort of, you know, emphasized. And um, I wondered if you could just touch on that a little bit. Um, I'd like to sort of bridge that. I just feel for me to grow. And maybe this is also included. I, I just, um, when I was writing that first type of essay, it often was very personal. It was in writing groups where I felt very comfortable. And then I, I wanted to be able to write writing that I felt I could share with more people. And I also had that thing about hurting people. And I'd like to hear a little more about how you resolve that. I mean, do you just not write about certain things? Do you not go I made people death? anonymous, actually. Anonymous. I totally went through and I scrubbed everybody's identities. Like, mm -hmm. And I scrubbed them so hard that, in fact, somebody came to me and said, I'm so upset that you told that story about me in your book. And I was like, 
I didn't tell any, I don't know what you're talking about. You're not even in my book. And she, I was like, what page? And I went to the page and I had so scrubbed somebody else's identity <laughs> that they were almost like this universal character that many people could relate to. And so she <laughs> thought it was her. So it can actually, but I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I feel like you really touched on this and maybe in a sense I did too. I mean, this kind of battle maybe between wanting to be in this kind of more meditative I don't know, poetic thinking mm -hmm, space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the pressure that you had from your editor to like, where's the story? Where's yeah, yeah, the story? Yeah. Or, you know, in my case, I was fighting between like, I, I haven't really resolved it yet. I mean, I feel like you resolved it, but I was like, over here, I'll write a story over here. I'll be more meditative. But I don't know. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a push. It is a push pull, Totally. but you always have to be aware. I mean, I, I'm sure you had this too with your editor and people, but I feel like the first time I ever wrote a piece of nonfiction, I gave it to my friends and they were just like, okay, so you got that out. Yeah. <laughs> and they, and they were like, so now you actually have to make it into a piece of writing. Yeah. 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 I think, I mean, part of it is sort of how you, um, I mean, I, I don't know, like the balance between the kind of the lyrical and the, the poetic and the sort of, I don't know, because I, I, I mean, I love, that's the stuff I like to write the most, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. um, and then the story part, I don't know, for me, I don't do total structural outlines, but I always, I make a list, uh, I mean, and I really, I mean, it's like a heading, things mm -hmm. to include, mm -hmm. and, and just make a list of, of those things. Um, so it's like, you, you kind of have that beginning, middle, end kind of jumbled and then sort of weaving those things in and out. Um, but everyone sort of, you know, you find your own, mm -hmm. I don't know, ways to balance that. Um, you know what else I was thinking of actually, this is a novel, but I, I feel it's so helpful to go back and forth between genres to look for solutions, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, there is a novel, and if you guys haven't read it, oh my God, it's so great. It's by this guy named Tom's Bernhardt, and it's called Woodcutters. And essentially I teach this a lot because of the structure of it. So essentially the structure, the idea, there is a guy who hates himself and his life and everyone in his life. He's a ranty dude, but he's at a party sitting in a wing chair. And he just says to himself, as I said to myself, sitting in the wing chair, and then he goes off for like five pages. And then it's like in the wing chair, I said to myself, boop, 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 boop. and then I'm in the wing chair and you keep getting these like wing chair moments where you remember, oh yes, he's at a party. He's sitting in a chair. This is where he's embodied. This is like the physical concrete space of this. And that just, it's almost like this constant kind of push pin in his otherwise meditative whirl around. It's so slight. It's the slightest little bit of grounding, but it, it allows him to go off That's great. on this crazy rant. Thank you. Thank yeah. you Thank so Thank you. Much. Yes. Hi. Um, one of you, I'm sitting in the back, so I couldn't quite see, but one of you said that you were working on a balance between being honest and not hurting anyone's feelings. And I wonder if you could say more about that. Is it really true that you can write an you know, uh, emotionally honest memoir, memoir and not, not hurt anyone's feelings? Yeah, I think we both dealt with that. You want to take this one? Well, um, I'll, yeah, briefly. Um, yeah, I mean, is it possible? Um, I don't know, I think... Gosh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I hurt people. I don't know. Yeah. People got upset. Um, I, I kind of hate you after that memoir. I'm like, <laughs> sorry I, about it. I, <laughs> sorry. I hate what you um, said about me on yeah. page 35. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, and it's, it does, I, you know, listening to Heidi sort of say, like, I was really careful not to hurt anyone. Like, I, I was sort of thinking, like, God, maybe I should have been more careful not to hurt anyone. Um, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know, I feel, I mean, it, it made my life feel weird and hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one way that I, again, this is like the book that is published versus the one that's not. So I have a husband who's a very private person and the poor dude obviously has had his whole life exposed by being married to me. And, um, but that said, I think I had a, again, like a rule, I don't want to call it a rule, but I realized what goes in, what doesn't go in, you know, in terms of hurting people, not hurting people. And I realized I was really only interested in looking at conflicts that I had with people wherein I was pretty sure I was in the wrong mm -hmm. and that I was more interested in trying to figure out how I fucked up instead of a really live, like there are plenty of things I could have written about 
ar arguments and problems that I have with my husband that are not resolved, where I don't necessarily think I was wrong. And I just was like, I don't, that's not to me, like that just feels like not processed enough yet. Like that is for him and for me to deal with and not to be processed in a book. And so I kind of, um, that was another way. I mean, I just feel like the person who was always the victim of me was me. Mm. Well, yeah, and I think, um, you know, psychology is inevitably such a huge part of, uh, of writing a memoir. And, you know, there was like a, a certain kind of extremely confessional sort of barn burning memoir that was really popular for, for a certain time, what, maybe 10, 20 years ago, and that sold really well. Um, and I, I always thought that, that there should be, like, some, one of those people should write the essay, like, what happens now? Like, mm -hmm. the after the memoir, like, after I've sort of shredded everyone else but didn't necessarily look, you know. I mean, generally, I think when we, when we try to think of memoir, we, we sort of think the substitute for plot might be, like, these kind of, like, breadcrumb, this breadcrumb trail to self-awareness. Is that sort mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you feel as a reader if, if, if someone is being kind of fair or true as, or as honest as they can, can be, right? Yeah. Um, so. so this is a question for Nina. You, you said you didn't, you know, go into this experience being a carpenter assistant, you know, around the gimmick of writing a book. Yeah. And I'm just curious when in that experience did you realize you know, there's a, the makings of a, of a book here and, and sit down to, to write this. Sure. So, um, uh, I mean, so first of all, when I, when I started the carpentry work, the only way I knew how to learn essentially was to take notes, both from, you know, just being in college and high school and as a journalist, you know, you're always sort of taking notes. And so I was, you know, on these jobs, uh, taking notes, you know, like, this is how you use the saw and, you know, all the most ridiculous stuff kind of like as fast as I could. Um, and then I was also finding that I was sort of taking notes about, you know, the houses that we were working in, the people we were working for. Um, so I, I was, I just had a lot of, a lot of notes, a lot of sort of material, um, for the stuff that we were doing. Um, I started keeping a blog, um, as kind of just a way to kind of I don't know, again, sort more for my own self to sort of understand what I was up to. Um, and the way the book came about was I had, um, I had written a book review um, about this book by Philip Connors called Fire Season. He's, he's really excellent. Um, and he was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal and left that job to be a fire tower lookout in New Mexico. It's a great book. Um, his editor saw the review and sent me a quick note um, complimenting the review, which like, doesn't happen. I mean, that, that like does, for me at least, like that hadn't happened before. Um, and, um, you know, saw that I had done the carpentry work and said, if you're ever considering writing a book, please let me know. And so I was just like, yes, <laughs> best email ever to get in my life. Um, so I, like I hadn't, I really hadn't considered writing a book about this stuff at all. Um, it was a matter of being kind of approached about telling that story. So that was about three years into the carpentry work. Um, and I did have, you know, I mean, had been writing a lot about it on the blog, had lots and lots of notes. Um, and so that's, that's how that story happened. Yes. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you. It's been a wonderful session. I appreciate all of your thoughts. Um, I have a question for Heidi about process. Um, mm -hmm. Yours is a diary, and it's a folded origami diary. And um, I wondered... For instance, how much of August 18th was written on an August 18th? Uh, and was it just sketches uh, that you made uh, and then went back and wrote uh, everything? Am I, am I making you divulge something you don't want to No, do? you're not making me divulge anything. No, all right. So the conceit that I set up from, again, like I sound like I'm just such a weirdo with rules and all these things, but it's just everything so spins out of control if there aren't any rules. So um, but when the, one of the things I did also was I just to like, again, it was all just about trying to disrupt. I just was sick of my head. I was just sick of where it went whenever I sat down in front of my computer. I'm sh I hope you guys can't relate, but maybe you can. <laughs> um, and so one of the things I did process-wise is I had this um, tap handle, which is just like a hot water tap handle that I found in the wall of my house because we had to demo the wall and people put things in their walls, bones, whatever. And so I found this um, tap handle and I was really attracted to it. Like it just was something I loved and I didn't know what to do with it. And so then I thought, well, I'm going to start drawing it and I don't draw at all. And I've never taken a drawing class and I am not an artist, um, visually speaking. And so I would sit down and I would draw this tap handle 
and I'd date it and then I would go and I would write. But I would like first like disorient myself enough by trying to draw this thing that when I went to write, I was a little bit off my usual track in the first place. So that was like a process thing that I did, which I really recommend. I really recommend if you are, um, if you feel stuck, um, like I'm recommending not just like moving out of your genre or coming up with rules or whatever, but also just do something you don't like do a dance. I don't know, do something, you know? Um, and, uh, and 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 then um, I did try to write everything. I tried to write an entry that would begin. And so, so technically, August 18th was the day before. But I did try to begin and end it in one day. I tried to write it in one day. And what I found, you know, so when you say it's an origami, I wish it was literally an, a piece of origami, and I <laughs> that would be really cool, but it's not. Um, but it's uh, it's told out, of, it's basically the diary's out of order. It's not in order, it's out of order chronologically. And part of that was because I didn't write every single day, be, or I did write days and they didn't work. And so part of the process was also understanding, like I had to sit down and it was like, again, I'm going to make a metaphor about something I know nothing about, surfing. It felt like surfing <laughs> in that I was just like, I was going to catch this wave and it was going to take me all the way to the shore or it wasn't. And like, there was no rewriting my way to shore. Like if the wave just died before shore, that was it. And I just had to throw that entry away. Yeah. When you, did you move the handle around when you drew it? Well, yes. And then sometimes I would close my eyes and do it from memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got bored. I have to say, I found it really boring. Mm -hmm. That was part of what was good about it. It was very boring. To do. <laughs> do we have a last question? Here we are. Um, yeah. The title, Reimagining the Memoir. Can you talk maybe a little bit about mm. how the memoir has changed? You talk about confessional ones and forms, but yeah. Um, yeah, well, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things we've had the memoir, I don't know, people always date it back to, wait, St. Augustine maybe, but, um, but it's really in the last, I feel like 30 years that it's become kind of this publishing industry sort of, uh, juggernaut. <laughs> um, and yeah, there was a sense of in the beginning that they were, people were coming to terms with kind of the psychoanalytic age and, and, and sort of, um, part of the art of the memoir is this card, kind of hard won self and the sense of of earning that voice and sort of tracing those experiences uh, that that made you who you were, um, and um, and yeah, since then I feel like you know the genre has really kind of um, started to strain the term memoir, and I've been on anyone who's been on any kind of. Um, I don't know, I'm sure academics debate this or, you know, um, just being on uh, prize juries myself, you know, we, we have like these incredibly tedious discussions about what it is. Do we call this memoir? Do we call it personal nonfiction? Do we call it personal narrative? You know, they're just, and, and what's the difference? And, and I find those things pretty you know, exhausting. Um, you know, technically, I'm not sure that in fact Heidi's book is a memoir, but it's certainly personal, and it, it makes some kind of contract with the reader of truth. Um, I know we say that fiction is the lie that tells the truth, but, um, you know, memoir is another kind of lie that tells the truth. It's the truth that tells the lie. So so recently, um, you know, Vivian Gornick would be an example of, of a memoirist who, um, you know, who is also a critic and includes this response to literature and how that's shaped her life. And I think Heidi would be a great example of, uh, you know, someone who's written a very personal book that has fictive aspects and play in it. And, um, and it, that's, so it's just a fascinating time for personal writing. Um, I hope that answers. Any last thoughts? <laughs> This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.